We are on a bright Friday morning. Uh, delighted to have Dr. Brody here to give us a talk about austere and uh, austere medicine and practicing medicine in rural areas and other kinds of things that we're about to learn. Um, this is the code VGQX to get credit today. There are no conflict of interests that have been revealed. And to introduce Dr. Brody to us today is our soon-to-be newest chair of a division, uh, Scott Rohde. And uh, within about three to uh, eight weeks, I think we'll know the status of uh, what's happening in the emergency division, but it will be becoming a department very likely by January 1st. So we're very delighted at the process that's happened, and thanks, Scott, for that. We'll know sometime actually in December. Um, Scott is an associate professor of medicine at the moment, and uh, that, that division will, will change all of the uh, nomenclature. Um, and he, of course, is our section chief in emergency medicine. Scott, tell us about our guest. Thank you, Rich. Thank you all. Good morning. Um, as many of you will be aware, this year marks the 25th anniversary of DART. And as such, um, we decided to focus this year's CREST Symposium, which has been going on for the last day and a half, on pre-hospital care, um, particularly as practiced in rural parts of the country. And uh, as you will see through my introduction, you'll uh, understand why we were very honored to have Dr. Brody join us as the keynote speaker for that CREST Symposium, and why I'm pleased to introduce him to you this morning. Uh, Dr. Brody is a tenured professor of emergency medicine with a secondary appointment in anesthesiology at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. He is chief of the Division of Pre-Hospital Austere and Disaster Medicine at the University of New Mexico. He is um, a director of the EMS Academy, he has published a textbook on emergent airways. He's authored more than 60 peer-reviewed publications, uh, and he has an active research portfolio, which I'll allude to more in a minute. Um, Darren actually grew up in Southern California, came to the Northeast when he attended Colgate University. He was an EMT there, I believe, and then got his, became a paramedic, went to medical school at New York Medical College. Uh, he made his way back to the West Coast for residency. He completed a residency in emergency medicine at UCSF Fresno and then landed sort of in between at the University of New Mexico in 2000, where he has been since. Uh, he continues to maintain his paramedic license. He continues to respond to scene calls as EMS director. Um, he has an active research uh, portfolio that is focused mostly on airway about which you'll be speaking to us this morning, um, but I think notably recently developed uh, a system to initiate ECMO in the field. And by field, is my understanding is like in the back of an ambulance um, and has successfully performed the first two initiation, field initiations of ECMO in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and then close to my heart, on top of all of that, he continues to moonlight occasionally at critical access hospitals in the Albuquerque area. So given all that, you can understand why we were so pleased uh, and honored that he joined us for the CREST Symposium and why I'm so pleased to introduce him this morning. Thank you, Darren. Well, thank you for that uh, kind introduction and thank you and uh, Matt and everyone for the, the invitation to, to come out. And we are gonna see if this screen does what this screen is supposed to do. We're gonna do that. All right, I think we are, it 
Back there. Yeah, I've got it all figured out now. All right. So, um, so as Scott said, I'm, um, I'm coming from New Mexico, and uh, it is great to be back in, in this part of the world. I actually spent quite a bit of time in the, in the Hanover area back in my, in my college days. But I, uh, I did land in New Mexico, and I always, anybody coming from New Mexico, anywhere to talk, always has to put in a few slides because people don't know where we are, that we're part of the United States. You know, I don't need a passport. Um, the state is uh, pretty big. We're the sixth biggest state in the union. And in that state, we have about 2 million people, but about a million of those are in the central corridor. So we have pretty, um, pretty spread out rural geography, comparing that to, to New Hampshire. Um, we're, you guys probably consider yourself pretty rural and we're even more, more dispersed out there. Um, it is a pretty place. Um, this is the Valle Caldera, which I, a place that I am very fond of, but it's actually northern New Mexico is quite high in elevation, quite mountainous. We have the Southern Rockies. Um, this is a picture of Albuquerque with the Sandia Mountains behind. And we are required, coming from New Mexico, we have to put in a picture of uh, balloons. That is actually mandatory, but this is our balloon fiesta that happens every October which is quite quite an event. But we uh, also have an emergency medicine residency program, and we have a fellowship in EMS, which um, some of you may know one of our current EMS fellows. So there's Lauren Bailey, all, all smiles there on the left, if you know Lauren, and she's, she's doing an awesome job. And we have a all-female crew this year, which is which is pretty fun, making up for our all-male crew last year. So these, uh, they're rocking it. So, um, all right. So the topic today is about extraglottic airways outside the OR, and I'm going to obviously explain what some of that means. Um, to me, grand rounds is to challenge folks, be a little controversial, put you perhaps outside your comfort zone. So I, I suspect we may, we may do that. Um, the topic uh, is going to be most relevant if you are um, doing airway management on a regular basis, but also perhaps if you do airway management on a very infrequent basis, then I think some of what uh, we're talking about today will be relevant to you. So officially, I have no conflicts that are relevant to disclose. Um, the one conflict that I mean... Sort of a, maybe not a conflict, but it's an important disclosure. Um, <laughs> in anything, there is a bell curve of practice, right, in medicine. And so, for example, for extraglottic airways, an LMA, for example, there are people for whom, you know, the patient's going to die without one of these. Um, there's the middle of, you know, the middle standard deviation, and then there's, you know, this bleeding edge over here. It's important in anything to know where you live on the bell curve and be honest with yourself and other people about where you live on the bell curve. So I live over here on the bell curve and I don't expect everybody by the end of today to necessarily join me on this bleeding edge of the curve, but maybe if you're over there, I can, I can swing you a little bit over here to screen left. All right, so a little history just so we can get on the same page of what we're talking about. So 
the original more or less extraglottic device. So these is be this device. This is something called an EOA. This was um, anybody remember these? Anybody here? Oh yeah. So these are um, this thing made a very satisfying click when the two parts got pushed together. After that, it was a horrific device to use. You still had to create the same seal that you would with mass ventilation, which sort of defeats the purpose, but it had this nice channel that would direct vomit from the esophagus out, like onto you, all sorts of things. So that's where things started. Um, we've come a long way. So extraglottic means outside the glottis, right? And so there's two big categories of devices. There's the supraglottics, the classic LMA, that's, that's the original laryngeal mask airway, and then there's the retroglottic devices, being laryngeal tube, combi tube, easy tube. So this is what we're talking about. But we're talking about not the use in the OR. We're talking about use in other, in other places. So just to give you an idea, there's a ton of these devices out there now. So depending um, you know, on your practice setting, you may not realize this is not by any means all of the, the brands of devices out there. This is just some of the superglottics that are out there. And it sounds like from what I hear in the hospital here and in this region, the iGel is um, particularly a common device, but there, there are many. And retroglottic, there are these three, three devices. These devices are the also called dual balloon devices, um, devices that are essentially meant to sit in the, in the esophagus and ventilate between those balloons. So, the whole idea with the extraglottics is that they're pretty high success and fast for placement, and we're not going to review all the literature on that today, and, ascend, and they're quite atraumatic, at least the supraglottic variants. Um, the, and that was really the reason that these were developed uh, for OR use was not, there were people that were very experienced at intubating, it was to be less traumatic for the patient uh, that was that was where that started. It's gone a lot of ways. Now I should tell you, I'm going to share a picture with you here. This is you know no no pictures. Don't don't tweet this. This is the um, out of a study that we're doing right now um, with our OMI doing forensic uh, radiology and CT scans. Our 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 uh, OMI does a CT scan or an MRI on every single patient that comes through, which is a wealth of data. And so we're actually looking at extraglottic airway placements in these patients to see, you know, if it ever goes wrong. Um, okay, so I, I, I presume for medicine grand rounds, we don't have too many radiologists in the room, but hopefully we can all agree that there's some foreign device here, perhaps an extraglottic airway, that takes a dreadfully wrong turn um, is bent back on itself, um, and you can you can't really see the airway because there's no <laughs> there's no ventilation happening through that. So it is possible. So these are very high success devices, but it is still possible to screw these up. Um, now intubation, on the other hand, not so easy. Depends on the patient. Depends on the operator. Not as fast, and can be quite traumatic. Hopefully not in most cases. The, um, the interesting thing is to think a little bit about the learning curve for intubation. Um, this is a classic study in the EMS world that looks at the number of intubations um, before you can achieve a 90% probability of success. And this is paramedic students, cumulative patient encounters in different settings. And of course, the OR setting, the controlled environment, has the best success. But you'll notice in the 
um, pre-hospital ICU settings in particular, um, even at 30 cumulative attempts, you're not getting to 90% success. Um, this also pans out for physicians. This is an interesting study out of Korea looking at doing intubation during CPR, cardiac arrest patients, and they call this thing, the study, they define this thing called a highly qualified intubation, which was intubating within 30 seconds with minimal interruption of CPR. I'm not exactly sure, you know, it's like, so that's sort of the goal here, right? It took more than 240 intubation attempts and experiences before their success rate was 90% for patients who were getting CPR and getting them intubated within 30 seconds without interruption. That's an impressive volume of, of experience. And if we look at how we do in emergency medicine, this is some near registry data. This is not, this is probably 10-year-old data um, by the time this was published and all that. So I think we've, we've come, come a little bit farther. But first attempt success for oral rapid sequence intubation, which should be really your highest success group, you know, running at about 80-ish you know, percent. I think we've, we've gotten a little bit higher. But... That might seem good unless you keep in mind all the data we have right now that first pass attempt is, is everything. The days when I grew up, which is like when the two, as long as there was a tube in eventually, we were good. It's like, that's, that's just not, that doesn't fly anymore. So a lot of data on the complications from multiple intubation attempts. This is, this is my, like the classic teachings paper from Tom Mort in Hartford, anesthesia, intubations outside the OR. So this was emergency intubations around the hospital, take your tackle box, go run somewhere. And they just stratified complications if we had two or less attempts. So one or two attempts versus more than two attempts. And these complications just go up dramatically, including cardiac arrest, you know. And this has been replicated in multiple settings. Um, this was an ICU study that also showed two or more attempts independently associated with an increased risk of severe complications, not just, ah, I don't, you know, something you have to put on the chart. Um, this was an emergency department study in Arizona showing huge increase once you go from one attempt to two and up. And in our own emergency department, we were looking um, in particular at hypoxemia and, again, same thing, more than one attempt is an independent risk factor for complications. So that's kind of, you know, this is all important background when we start thinking about our overall approach to emergency airway. So intubation takes experience, especially during CPR, it's hard. So really want to get somebody managed on the first attempt. And I think we all understand that CPR, or particularly interruption of CPR, is bad, right? There's, it's, not, um, it's not hard to find evidence that, you know, you can't interrupt process. That, you know, it clearly correlates to worse outcomes for patients. So we're kind of just checking off boxes of, of things that are kind of stacked against us a little bit. And mask ventilation is just plain hard. Not always. I mean, this is one of... <laughs> This is one of our former residents mask ventilating over here, and um, it seems like they're just having a conversation. 
which is great. I appreciate the, you know, you can see the sats 100% in the background. Everybody's perfectly relaxed and calm, but it doesn't always, always work like that. So um, one of the questions that I kind of, some people may be asking, I sometimes ask myself is, why don't we just use an extra glottic device then if they're generally faster, generally easier to place? Why don't we just use them for everybody? I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair question to ask. And um, to, you know, it's a sedate, pre-caffeinated audience this morning. I can, you know, but I, can, I imagine the thing that most of you are thinking, it's like, well, clearly the reason we don't do this for everybody is aspiration, right? That's, that's the elephant in the room, it's aspiration. And so we're stuck with having to deal with all this other stuff. It's actually interesting when you look at the evidence around aspiration and extraglottic devices, and there's more and more, and sometimes it's not the main point of studies. So now one thing that's interesting is we talk about seal pressures. Um, the, this is, there's two ways when we talk about airways to look at seal pressure. We're generally talking about a leak pressure for positive pressure ventilation, um, but you can also look at the seal pressure for the esophagus and how well these devices seal against aspiration. So two different ways of looking at airway pressures, or I should say seal pressures, not to say airway, so this is esophageal pressures. Some of these devices have unbelievable abilities to withstand huge columns of, of water pressure put into the esophagus, and these devices actually maintain that seal, way more than I think most of us would imagine is the case. And if you look in the actual real world, so this is, there's two big airway studies were published um, last year, uh, Airways 2 and the Pragmatic Airway Trial in the same issue of JAMA. And we're, we're talking, you know, this was almost 10,000 patients pre-hospital randomized in cardiac arrest, paramedics either randomized to do intubation or an eye gel. And this study is, in the U, this was a U.S. study, 3,000 patients, randomized, cardiac arrest, paramedics, multicenter, laryngeal tube, King Airway, or intubation. And of course, they're looking at other measures here. But what's interesting is the aspiration rates in these groups were not different. Very high, 20s, you know, in the 20s percent. Um, secondary outcomes, regurgitation and aspiration were not different, 26, 24.5%. So cardiac arrest patients, most of, you know, a big proportion of them aspirate. They probably aspirated before a rescuer ever got to them while they were getting CPR. The device, after we got to them, didn't make the difference. Now, that's a CPR population. Um, there's also, this is an interesting, this is a little side note, and this paper got a lot of attention back in, two, in the 2005 when it came out. It was one of many studies looking at pre-hospital RSI and the implications, and it was all about mortality and head injury and stuff, but this last line got no attention. These were GCS less than eight intubate patients, and doing RSI, the whole purpose of doing RSI in this population was airway protection didn't prevent aspiration in that group. We actually looked at this in our own small study in our own system because I just kind of wanted to see it started as a QA project. 
um, between patients that were managed with extraglottics and intubation in the pre-hospital setting. And we didn't have a huge series where we had 48-hour follow-up on radiology for aspiration because it was hard. We sent patients to lots of hospitals. It was hard to get follow-up. But we had some, and it was interesting. After we weeded out, these inevitable aspiration were cases where the paramedics documented that the airway was full of vomit or blood, which is why they couldn't intubate. Okay. Um, so, okay, I mean, that's inevitable aspiration. But the aspiration rates were actually less in the patients managed with extraglottics. So that was kind of our own internal QA project to say, are we kind of tracking with what other people are seeing? So it turns out that using the argument of airway protection, at least over the short term, as a reason to persist in intubation, really doesn't, doesn't hold up. So the other things that come up as reasons maybe that we should move away from extraglottics and kind of push for intubation is, oh, it's, you know, it's clearly harder to ventilate a patient or some patients with extraglottic devices. And the populations that we tend to think of that are going to be the hardest to ventilate are patients that are super obese or patients with significant and particularly obstructive lung pathology. Right? Now, we don't have studies, no surprise, of extraglottic devices being used emergently in a large number of patients with, for example, you know, severe asthma exacerbation that was so bad that somebody needed to have their airway emergently managed. You know, we just don't have those studies. Um, but we do have a lot of evidence in obese patients. And it turns out, and this is actually a Cochrane review that, you know, looked at this. And um, this was, you know, one particular, this is the ProSteel LMA, which is similar to the LMA Supreme. But there's lots of studies out there using these devices in, in morbidly obese populations. It's amazing how well, so if your experience with extraglottics is like the old LMA classic, then of course you're going to say this isn't going to work very well, but the devices have come a long way. So if you look at the newer devices across the board, the airway leak pressure, the pressure at which you generate in the airway beyond which you can expect to see an airway leak, whether that is clinically significant or not is a separate issue. Most of the time it's not. It's 25 to 35 millimeters of mercury. So it's relatively high, depends on the device. It, of course, depends on how well that device seats. Pretty high pressures. Now, it's not like these devices are tolerating 40 and 50. Um, this was just also to show you, you may recognize one of the authors on, on this case report, but this also speaks to, um, this was an extraglottic device, a King Airway, Keep 17, with recruitment maneuvers utilized. It's really kind of phenomenal the things you can do with extraglottic devices now that we never really thought was possible. We always thought you would have to intubate a patient to do things like this. Um, and one of the, the things I'll say, one of the problems that I see is that people use these known predictors of difficult mask, of, sorry, difficult extraglottic device use and ventilation and extrapolate that to not using them in emergencies. This was a case that's actually unbelievably painful to read. If you want to go back and read this from 2009, um, it'll give, it kind of give you goosebumps. I can't, I, kudos to the, the folks that wrote this up and really aired their dirty laundry about a case that was really, really poorly managed on so many levels. 
But one of the things that was fascinating with this guy, this patient with had a GSW to the neck, is that they, that they couldn't intubate, like forever. They just couldn't intubate. Nobody ever tried to put in an extraglottic device. They even state that in the paper. Well, and he's like, well, why? They predicted it to be difficult. Wait a second. Predictors of difficulty are useful only when you're in a situation where you have an option. Like if you're looking at a patient in front of you and you're trying to decide which pathway to go down, and am I, am I going to do RSI, am I not, do I need help? How yeah. You want to know how difficult intubation is going to be, mask ventilation is going to be, extraglottic, crack. You want to know kind of the layout, of the lay of the land. But once, the, once things go downhill, use any tool you have if it doesn't work perfectly. And I've seen this, this go wrong quite a few times. All right, so aspiration, maybe not the issue we think it is. Ventilation, maybe not the issue that we think it is in all patients. One of the other things, if you're really savvy in the world of, of extraglottic devices, and I don't expect everybody in this room to be savvy, but you may know that there's been some questions about cerebral perfusion. And this just jerk of a guy, Dr. Seagal, Right? <laughs> had the nerve to publish a paper a few years ago where they elegantly catheterized cerebral vessels of pigs and put in different airway devices and measured cerebral perfusion pressure and found during CPR that these devices impaired cerebral blood flow. They never claimed that this was extrapolatable to humans, um, but this made a, quite a bit of fuss, and this was a picture kind of, you know, trying to look at the different relationships. But um, so this came out, and people were calling for the moratorium on, literally, moratorium, editorials, stop using extraglottic devices in cardiac arrest because we're going to kill people from cerebral perfusion impairment. Uh, and I jest about Dr. Seagal, because he's now one of our senior residents at uh, UNM. Okay. Outstanding, outstanding <clears throat> researcher. And um, so we did something to just kind of try to rebut this to some extent, because it just didn't fit with our experience. So we took 17 patients that had CT scans of the neck with extraglottic devices in place, and we looked for mechanical compression of the cerebral vessels. And we didn't find any. Now, not a huge number of people, but some people would say, you got CT scans of the neck on 17 people with extraglottic airways in place in like a year and a half? Think about that, if how that may relate to your practice that you see. In your, um, but what we found is, turns out, we're not pigs. In case you were wondering, we're actually not pigs. I've shown my wife, who's not medical, these images and didn't seem to convince her. But when you actually look at where the cerebral vessels sit relative to the airway in humans versus in swine, they don't sit in the same place. So it makes sense that they would have different, different results here. So I'm not sure. Now, we can't tell you what happens in a low-flow cardiac arrest state, but reassured me a little bit. That was before all these big studies came out that I showed you earlier with 
like over 10,000 patients with neuro outcomes that are equivalent or better with extraglottic airway devices. And then people say, well, you can't put them in if they have a gag reflex, right? So that's, in that case, you just have to do RSI and intubate. Well, maybe not. Um, for pre-hospital use, initially, we came up with this crazy idea in New Mexico a number of years ago. Some people call it RSI with a certain airway. Some people call it POM, pharmacologically assisted laryngeal mask airway. But um, we came up with a concept where we actually use the pharmacology and preparation of an RSI sequence with the express purpose of putting in a second generation extraglottic device, um, which may seem crazy to folks, uh, but this has actually panned out very well for us. We don't have a ton of numbers. We're, we're publishing a, a case series right now, and we only have about 55 cases um, where I have full data. But um, it has worked. It was, the idea was to get us an EMS off scene quickly um, instead of spending 20, 30 minutes on scene doing an airway to just get off scene and then manage the airway on the way to the hospital. But it always works so well, we just end up leaving them in. So interesting. Just, so... The point of this is there's, there's actually a lot of ways to manage um, the airways and the extraglottic devices. Um, some of the obvious barriers may not be the barriers that we think they are. So um, I'm gonna just go through quickly a few kind of scenarios, not like full cases, just like one line like scenario and just tell you how I manage those scenarios and show you how extraglottics factor into that. And then I just wanna end with spending a few minutes talking about how to actually manage these devices when you encounter them, because I think that's super clinically relevant. All right, so for example, I have pre-hospital, I have hospital. Patient in cardiac arrest, for me, pre-hospital, I'm still pretty sold on the extraglottics. When I'm on scene, and I'm on you know, a fair amount of pre-hospital cardiac arrest cases, unless there's a compelling reason, extraglottic device, good to go. We get ROSC, or we're doing pre-hospital transesophageal echo, so sometimes I exchange these for the purposes of facilitating TEE, that's a little bit different. Um, pre-hospital patient needs RSI, needs airway management, and I'm in the confines of an aircraft. So that's really where we came up with RSA, and that to me, if the patient, that's where the predictors of difficulty, that's where it's relevant. If I have a patient who has clear predictors of difficult ventilation with an extraglottic device, I'm not going down a pathway of pharmacologically, you know, inducing and paralyzing them for the sole purpose of putting in an extraglottic airway. That would be absurd. But if they don't have predictors of that difficulty, then this is often my, my go-to initial approach. The longer the transport time, that factors in. If they have extra risk for aspiration, that factors in. If I have time to do it on scene, that fact, you know, if I have tons of time, that's a little bit different. Um, again, um, scene times for the EMS folks, that can be, and it's interesting because I think a lot of you hopefully appreciate that RSI, rapid sequence intubation, there's nothing rapid about it. It was never meant to be rapid. It just meant that the steps came in rapid succession um, some of the studies actually now that have looked at pre-hospital pharmacologically assisted airway management in very sophisticated systems that really do it right. And I'm thinking 
for those, you know, in that world, the Jarvis study from Texas recently, um, their median scene times in cases that got airways were um, like, I want to say approaching 40 minutes. There's an Australian study that had scene times even longer, but they have to do everything bigger and better in, in Australia, I guess. So it is, this is not like we're talking about like minimizing scene times, like I'm trying to take a five-minute scene time and make it four minutes. I'm trying to take a 30-minute scene time and maybe make it 10 or 15 minutes, you know, 20. That, that's, that's the kind of changes I'm hoping for. All right. So here's for the hospital-based folks here. What happens when a code arrives to you, wherever you live, with a functioning, functioning extraclotic device? So in my world, I leave that in until there's a reason to change it. And then it's not being changed in an urgent, you know, maybe urgent, not emergent fashion, very controlled fashion. You know, I need a TE, I have ROSC, those are reasons. And we will absolutely terminate resuscitations with extraglottic devices in place. Okay. So return of circulation, um, TE, those are reasons. Um, but just uh, wanting to pronounce somebody, you know, there's return of spontaneous circulation. Sorry. Thanks for asking. So there is some mythology out there that you can't, you know, terminate or pronounce with an extraglottic airway in place. And there's absolutely no legal precedent for that anyway. What do you buy codes in the hospital? Now, I'm not going to put you guys on the spot and ask what your code team and response pattern is here, but at our center, level one, trauma center, academic, university, hospital, residents running all over the place, our code team includes an attending intensivist 24-7, goes to every in-hospital code, there's usually an anesthesia resident there, there's a rapid response team, with two paramedics, our policy is to place an extraglottic device for the initial management of that resuscitation. And we will move people from the floor to the ICU for consideration of ECMO and eCPR with the extraglottic in place. Patient arrives to the ER, the ICU, with a functioning EGD. They're alive. This isn't a code. Living patient. I guess I should have put that up there. In our world, this is not that uncommon a scenario because our we have really moved our flight crews in particular to this idea, one, of doing RSA sometimes, but of just moving very quickly to a backup device because we don't see them as devices of failure in any respect. So we it's just not uncommon to have people come in with these devices. And our general approach is to leave it in for the initial resuscitation unless there's a compelling reason. Now, sometimes that compelling reason is a certain attending who's like, no, you can't do that. But in general, we leave it in, and we will often go to CT with an extraglottic device in place with a patient sedated on a ventilator. We got, in a year and a half, we had 17 CTs of the neck. We had a whole lot more CTs of the head. So it's just, it's not the... You know, what's great for us is you send somebody to CT, and then while everybody else is looking like the trauma team is looking at the images, we can quietly sneak in and exchange the tube without a lot of commotion. It works out. It's beautiful thing from that. All right. And then mask, difficult mask ventilation. I don't care where you are. I see people struggling with mask ventilation. I just, it's usually a problem here, right? You can't get a seal here. I just bypass the problem. 
I put in an extra glottic device. And if I have any issues with missed initial attempts, and I'm not talking about like three attempts, often after one or two attempts, because of my, what I know about multiple attempts, I will place an extra clotic device and regroup. And sometimes we stand there for a minute and we're like, okay, I know why this didn't go well. Patient's still doing okay. I think we should intubate the patient and then we'll do that. Sometimes we leave it alone, address other priorities. Sometimes, and I'll show you, we'll go through the device to manage the airway, um, but it's not uncommon practice. And, and difficult pre-oxygenation, um, I will not uncommonly, if I'm having trouble pre-oxygenating a patient and they're not a candidate for delayed sequence intubation, which is a whole nother talk, um, we'll sometimes use that RSA concept that I talked about. And this is interesting, I deal with in a state that has a lot of rural providers and very small low volume emergency departments. Um, who have somehow over the years have been told that they're supposed to be able to maintain these intubation skills for really sick patients, despite the fact that their experience in the last five years is they've done a half a dozen at most intubations over five years, and somehow somebody is telling them that they're supposed to maintain that standard, that seems really unfair. So I encourage providers in our rural areas that aren't doing this frequently if they get into trouble, is just place an extra glottic device or make one attempt but have that extra glottic device sitting right there and put it in. And then when the transport team gets there, now you've got two extra people, you have a team, and now you can decide, is that a reasonable to leave it in? Or should we change it? But you've got a lot more experience and resources on hand. So that's really strongly encouraged providers with you know, less experience. And you think about cardiac arrest, 240 procedural experiences to get to 90%. All right, so for me, I have a take home. In my world, putting in an extra glottic device should attract as little attention as putting in an oral airway. I don't think, I have people from my department sitting here, I think hopefully would agree that it is just not, putting in an extra glottic device in our department is just not a topic of discussion. It just doesn't attract any attention. It's like, it's just something you do, it's a tool. Where I go other places and they're like, Oh, that's a root. That's a root cause analysis. Like if somebody ended up with an LMA in the emergency department or the ICU, that is like failed airway. Somebody screwed up. And and literally, I've been to places where that is like a mandatory QA review. Whereas to me, it's like, well, every time you put in an oral airway, do you do that? So that's about the level that it falls for me. Um, let's. Um, so let's. So let's talk, so if that's the case, then we need to talk about what to do once you have an airway like this in. Whether you put it in or whether somebody else put it in, let's spend just the last few minutes talking about how to manage these devices. Because maybe I've convinced somebody here to put one in that they, they might not have. And maybe you're just gonna go from putting it in after five intubation attempts to putting it in after three intubation attempts. That, that to me is, that's progress. We're moving, honestly, we're moving the right way. Um, you have a cardiac arrest come in and you decide to put one in. But, um, or you just decide to leave one in for a little longer than it might have been. And in my medical legal review, and I get sent uh, a lot of airway cases, um, this is a recurring theme. And unfortunately, I've tried to get permission from lawyers of several, of quite a few cases that I wanted to publish educationally and they close cases, they always say for whatever reason, no, we can't talk about this case. Like, ah, 
This is a recurring theme, people yanking out perfectly good extraglottic devices and then not being able to manage the airway or not putting one in when it was available. So it is, it does really play out. All right, so this is a paper that we had just published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. It's a review article on managing the out-of-hospital extraglottic airway device. So this doesn't just apply, but this is how they, they wanted it framed from the editors. But this applies to any extraglottic device, whether you put it in or it came in from the field, doesn't matter. We wanted to give providers in any specialty that encountered this, a framework to evaluate these airways and think of how to do this without necessarily just ripping these devices out. So what I'm gonna show you here is step one of the algorithm. Patient comes in with an extraglottic. This may say, oh yeah, it's cess ventilation. But no, wait a second. This is, this is oxygenation. So we, this screws people up all the time. A patient comes in with one of these devices or you walk into a room and you know, we're somewhere in the hospital somewhere and somebody has placed one of these devices and we intuitively, the first thing we look at is the SAT. That's the vital sign that initially we're most worried about. But when it comes to these devices, what I care about is whether they're ventilating the patient. If they are ventilating the patient and the SAT is poor, the problem is in the patient. It's not in the device. And this is where I see people get into trouble all the time. A patient rolls in and the SAT's 85% and somebody sees an extraglottic device and they, they rip it out. What they don't realize is that this patient may have been satting 60. Some providers struggled to get this airway in. It's not an easy airway. And the, you look at the capnography waveform, and it's a beautiful waveform. And you look at chest rise, and the chest is rising. And so somebody yanks this out. And if you're on a ventilator with positive pressure and PEEP, and your SAT's 85%, what happens the minute you pull that device out? The SATs tank, and it's basically, you know, cardiac arrest. And now you're behind the eight ball. You're struggling in a difficult airway, and sometimes you never get back to where you were. Instead of trying to figure out why the patient is hypoxic other than the device, you know, do they need, you know, obvious things, right? Is there, you know, is there a pneumo that they need to address? Do we need fingers in the chest? Do we have a bronchospasm issue? Do we just need to increase our PEEP, which we can do, as I've shown you on extraglottic devices? But the key to this is we don't pull the device out unless it is clearly non-functional. And you will see those cases. I mean, you will see something roll, roll in and it's like, the device is hanging out the side of the mouth, it's rotated 90 degrees, it's like, it's not working, it's not ventilating. But otherwise, I encourage people not quickly to look at the device and look at the ventilation. And if this requires cap waveform capnography, right? You really have to be set up in all these patients to quickly do waveform capnography. They're ventilating. Okay, give me a minute to see if I can troubleshoot the problem. Occasionally you decide that the problem is that the patient, the tube needs to be changed out. No issues at all. But at least I'm doing that with a bit of a plan. So that I think is, is super 
super important. And you can, you know, pull up the article and you can kind of work through kind of the different, the different pathways. Um, and this can all be done in the real world very quickly. I mean, this isn't like a five-minute algorithm. In the real world, this is something that's happening in, you know, 20, 30 seconds you're making these assessments. So if you go through your pathway and you decide that you have a little bit of time to work with, you're addressing patient pathology, you're optimizing the situation. Um, one of the things that I just want to encourage people to do um, and so that they don't realize that this isn't an option is using a ventilator with your extraglottic devices. There is also mythology out there that some reason ventilators can't be used with an EGD. Yet, I am sure if we walked up to the OR right now, here, you would find room after room after room of patients that are on ventilators with extraglottic devices in place. Now, granted, you'll say, well, those are fasted patients. Yes, I get that. But our patients um, probably already aspirated. So where are we at? So you can put them on a ventilator. Um, this is a fun picture. I like this. This is pre-hospital in my system. This is one of my EMS captains, Albuquerque Fire. You can see we're in the middle of a cardiac arrest here with the Lucas device. Here is our portable ventilator connected to an Oregon extraglottic device. So we actually use ventilators during cardiac arrest, which is also, that's a whole nother talk. Um, that really challenges folks. Even in my hospital, I haven't yet been able to get my in-hospital respiratory therapist to buy into this. Whereas in the field, this is just like all day, we're putting people on ventilators. Just as an aside, because I like to, you know, talk up my system, you'll also notice that my paramedic is doing transesophage, transthoracic echo, and our paramedic supervisors do cardiac ultrasound routinely for PEA patients as part of our, our algorithm. Um, but we, you can use PEEP. Now, whether you're using PEEP in cardiac arrest, separate discussion, in a perfect world, you have a patient in, and you have the ventilator management skills and the right ventilator. This one is not, this Parapac transport ventilator, but you would go into a pressure control over a volume control mode, you know, because you know that there's leak pressure issues, but it can certainly be done with volume control. We do it all the time. Now, I would also say decompress the stomach. Most of the newer extraglottic second generation devices have a pathway. Here is the pathway on, I don't know why it says null. Okay, um, here is a king laryngeal tube, um, and that shows you the gastric tube passing through the device. Strongly encourage you to decompress the stomach through any of the devices that have a channel that allows it. Most of them now have that. A lot of them, even down to the small pediatric sizes, have a gastric decompression channel. What size gastric tube it takes, unfortunately, every brand and every size is different. And that adds a little bit of complexity. So managing them, when we send our patients off to the CT scanner, when we do with one of these devices in place, stomach is hopefully decompressed. They are comfortable and sedated. They are on a ventilator. Um, at some point, inevitably, we want to exchange these devices. Sometimes it's really early. Sometimes they come in and you're like, this is not going to hold the day. And so like, okay, we got to change this very quickly. Sometimes. We're 30, 40 minutes 
an hour into a resuscitation when we finally get around to changing this. Kind of depends on the case. So the first thing is you have to know thy device. There is not one exchange that works for all of them. It sounds like from talking to folks here, the two most common devices in the system here are the iGel and the LearnGel tube. So if that's the case, great. You have to know two devices, um, but you are, you know, you're a referral facility. You get people from all over, so good chance you could see more than those two devices. Um, so in terms of the, the retroglottic devices, just to throw out a couple little pearls for you, um, this, um, these devices, unfortunately, intubating through them is very challenging. So for those in the know, there are some Aintree catheter approaches that you can use. Um, but um, in general, um, people prefer to not do that. And so um, there's a couple, couple simple approaches. This was a, a paper we did um, with data from uh, Minneapolis of quite a few patients, almost 650 patients, that had their King Airway exchanged in the emergency department. Um, we did this paper to rebut another paper that suggested, I should have put that in, that you had to do a crike in all these patients that had like basically all of them. It's like, you've got to be kidding. So um, these were almost all, less than 1% of patients required a surgical airway. So not necessary. Two approaches to exchanging a King. One is simple, you just pull it out. Kind of, uh, after you've optimized the patient. You've decompressed their stomach. You've sucked everything that you can out of the stomach. You've optimized their oxygenation. You've set up for difficulty. You have a good plan. You can just, at that point, you could pull it out. Um, my preferred approach, which had a slightly higher success rate in the study, both, both approaches were very successful, which is to, when you're ready, take down the balloons of the King Airway. So the King Airway is one of these dual balloon devices you let the air out, and on a king, both balloons come down at the same time. And you sweep the device all the way to the left side of the mouth, if you can picture that. And then you visualize around the device. And so if you, if, two things. One, if you get into trouble, of course, you can just blow it back up. But the other thing is it's blocking one of the holes and kind of the hole you don't want to get into because it's sitting in the esophagus. So it has a little added plus. And you also can continue your gastric suction through the whole procedure. So that's my preferred approach to managing King Airways if you have to exchange them. None of these are just yank out kind of approaches. Um, now, if you have the superglottics, like an iGel, any of them except the LMA Supreme, you can actually exchange them with continuous ventilation. Now, in our paper that I talked about, we actually outline all the different devices. We categorize them. We talk about the different exchange approaches, and we have videos of the primary devices and primary approaches. I put one video in here to show you um, our technique for endoscopic exchange with continuous ventilation. Um, and this is, this is super slick and doesn't require really a whole lot of... In this video, we demonstrate our preferred method for endoluminal exchange of a supraglottic device. This strategy is not intended for the retroglottic dual balloon devices, nor the LMA Supreme. As you can see, we have preloaded an endotracheal tube within the lumen of the device. This has no deleterious effect. It just adds some dead space to the system. With respect to how deep to place the tube, ideally, the tube is preloaded to a depth 
whereas the tip does not project past the device. With respect to what size diameter tube to use, specifically with respect to the eye gel device, many providers quote using a size endotracheal tube that is the size of the eye gel plus three. When dealing with other devices, the size of tube that will be permitted varies. We've also put a small amount of air into the endotracheal tube cuff. This creates an airtight seal between the two devices. This allows for continuous oxygenation and ventilation during the procedure. We've also added an endoscopic port adapter to the system. This allows for attachment to a ventilator or a bag during the procedure. Using an intubating bronchoscope, we drive down the lumen of the device until we encounter the glottis. The patient is being glottis should be immediately visible upon exit. If the device was functioning properly before the procedure, operators should feel confident that these structures will be in the expected location. When the glottis is encountered, the bronchoscope can then be driven down the trachea. After visualization of the carina, the balloon of the endotracheal tube can be deflated and then it can be advanced to depth through the lumen of the device. The ventilator may alarm during this step. It is not unexpected. The balloon of the endotracheal tube can then be reinflated with a normal volume of air after it's at depth. Okay, so if you actually encounter these, if that's, some, if that's in your wheelhouse to deal with these things and it wasn't exactly clear how that was done, then you know, go watch the video again. That's a link is on from that Annals uh, Emergency Medicine paper. And we again, we have four videos on there. But the key to this is the ability to almost continuously ventilate through the whole procedure, which just takes the, the stress off the procedure. Now, clearly, the size of the endoscope relative to the internal diameter of the ET tube determines how well you are ventilating. Um, but it is, it is surprising to me, just like people are doing, you know, bronchs all the time in the ICU, it's surprising to me how well uh, people can continue to oxygenate and ventilate. So if I were to summarize what we've, you know, talked about today, kind of, and where I, you know, my point is I understand that I'm probably on the bleeding edge of the curve, but I would say, and I say it often, the enemy of the good is better, or the enemy of the extraglottic is the ET tube. Um, we love ET tubes. In a perfect world, we would always rather have an ET tube. And I'm not suggesting that the ET tube is gonna, you know, don't sell your stock in the ET tube, right? They're not going away. That is still our gold standard airway device, but it is remarkable how well these other devices work and how much you actually can do with these devices if you understand them and you just treat them as like kind of an oral airway. It's just another, another airway tool. So I will end there. People that have to run off to clinical responsibilities can run away and I'll, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to take them. Everybody's running off to put in extra product devices as we speak. I, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I'm a late adopter, just sort of knowing where you are and where your bias stands, right? And so yep. if on your initial curve, I was maybe somewhere in the middle, like, and, and say you have convinced me to move in your direction, which you have. Um, from a clinical standpoint, uh, you, you, you emphasize, I think, probably the bunch of the audience may not be sort of missed the significance of this, but this idea of going to CT scan, for instance, with an extra product device, um, after your 
you know, to your talk yesterday, one of our trauma guys gave a talk to the rural group and made you emphasize the point that even if they come in with an extra block device, we will put in an ET2 before we let them go to CT. So that, that philosophy is firmly in place in the country. It's, oh, yeah. No yep. So um, one of the questions I have is if I think you've got good data to suggest why it's safe to move in your direction. What happens medical legally? If, you know, we're, we're all going to have that outcome. So what if you do send somebody to the scanner with an extra block device and have a bad accomplishment? I think may well have with an ET2. Is there... Is there sufficient evidence now to, to defend that? I, I think there is evidence, and I think it also, um, if you look at the delay, I mean, you have to weigh this against, for example, um, we all say, oh, well, we'll just change out the ET2 quickly before we go to CT scan. What is quickly? Right? How often does that little decision mean 15 minutes, maybe more, for the patient before they ever get the imaging that they really needed. Is that a clinically significant delay in care for a certain patient? You know, so you can kind of see where, um, where this all goes. I think um, one of the case series that we want to do um, next is look at all the kind of the time course and the history of all of the extraglottics that come into our department and look at how long are they in, um, and how often they get, you know, exchanged and go to CT just so because this paper, that paper that I referenced wasn't intended to look at that. That was just kind of a added. Um, but I've, I've definitely starting to accumulate data on the time course of these devices. And it's, you know, a couple of the ones that I have in our emergency department, just in my little database so far have durations, dwell times of over an hour. Um, so, it seems like you can kind of create a dose response curve of sorts and, and see that, you know, maybe there isn't a that the aspiration and complications don't relate to the time that the device is in. So um, what you're describing is the prevailing, you know, opinion out there. Um, of all the things that I'm talking about, getting people to the point of going to a CT scan with an extraglottic is, that is on the bleeding edge of the curve. I mean, that's not where I'm hoping most people go. You know, it's starting with patient comes in with cardiac arrest in the hospital, put in an extra glottic. Even if you leave it in there for two rounds of CPR, just to get people comfortable with the device, and then you exchange it. That to me is, that to me is progress. Getting people after you've tried to intubate three times, instead of cranking the patient, to put in an extraglottic device, that's progress. Getting somebody who comes in with an extraglottic device to have somebody wait five minutes while they get their stuff together with that device in place and put them on the ventilator while they're getting their stuff together, that's, for many places, that's huge progress. And I don't underestimate that. I'm not suggesting that most people are ready to be on this end of the curve. But I do think it's those small steps that, you know, you can't practice your crikes on patients, but you can practice this, right? That's the beauty of this. You can just get so comfortable with it. You just put it, oh, the sats are falling, you're bagging, you know, you're doing a, an RSI, the sats are falling, you're bagging. It's like, well, instead of bagging, just throw in, throw in your eye gel. Maybe it's only in there for 30, 60 seconds. Eye gels aren't that expensive. And now... One more group of people is comfortable with that device. Like, oh, huh, it works. 60 seconds, you know, and then you move on. It's just, yeah, it's, it's small steps. Any other questions?
Thank you so much. Thank you.